Welcome to the official tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are fully immersed in the Australian Open right now. We always have conversations about as players and coaches wanting players rankings and seedings to reflect their ability. And Matteo Berrettini got a lesson in just that, having to play Andy Murray in the first round of the Australian Open and losing in five sets to a former Grand Slam champion, Hall of Famer, and for God's sake, a knight in the UK. And so again, I think along with Matteo, the world is what is wants all these players who are former Grand Slam champions, who are really, really great athletes like a Kyrgios, right? Seeds and rankings to reflect their ability so they don't blow up a draw because that quarter of the draw where Mateo was is certainly blowing up now. Big congratulations to Chris Eubanks on first round victory as well. And on the women's side, we spoke last week about Jessica Pagula, um, you know, looking the strongest one, looking like the strongest woman uh, in the United Cup. And again, in her first round, having a 55-minute victory over a tough opponent. And so I think she's looking strong. And today I will go out on a limb and say she is my pick for the Australian Open. Now to this week's guest. We always talk about how tennis provides opportunities to folks. And now we've got a world-famous actor who uh, opens up and reflects on how acting was his plan B. And that opportunity was only afforded to him because of an opportunity given to him by Virginia Commonwealth University earned a tennis scholarship to travel from Germany to the U.S. We've got Boris Kojo this week, folks. Take a listen. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with an actor, somebody that nobody, most people don't know. Acting was his fallback. Tennis was his plan A. He's the star of uh, Soul Food, Loving Basketball, Real Husbands of Hollywood, and now Station 19. But he was a four-year letterman at VCU, ninth in school history in singles wins, tied for third in doubles wins. Uh, let's welcome to the show Boris Kojo. Boris, thanks for coming on. Come on. Thank you, brother. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. So I remember the first time we met, we were at uh, La Quinta, and it mm -hmm. was charity event, La Quinta, you were hitting on center court, and I was walking through to the practice courts, uh, and I was like, who's that big-ass dude hitting the ball <laughs> like that? I was like, it looks like Boris, but I thought he hooped. You know, I was like, well, I'm looking at Boris, I can really play. I was like, no, that's Boris, he playing. I was like, eh, okay, that's cool. So, that you know, even as deep as I am in the sport, I, I didn't know, you know, that's up to seven years ago, I didn't know that you, you know, were a tennis player. So tell me about, uh, and not even that, when I think about you as an actor and we think about Idris Alba, right? It's clear from his accent that he was not born in America and was, you know, raised overseas. But your accent doesn't resemble a Dominic team, Austrian <laughs> type German accent at all. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing and how you found tennis. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in, uh, born and raised in Germany, and uh, my mom's German. My dad is from Ghana, West Africa, and uh, so I found the sport uh, through my dad, actually. He was a big tennis player. My uncle played uh, Davis Cup for, for Ghana, so um, uh, he put a tennis racket in my hand when I was two, three years old, and that's how I was introduced to the sport, and um, 
I started pretty early and then, uh, you know, found other sports, soccer, basketball. When you, when you grow up in Germany, you know, soccer is first and then the rest sort of follows. So we played all sports, which uh, I think is something that kids are missing here when they focus on one sport too early. Um, and then when I was 14, 15, I decided it was going to be tennis. And uh, I grew up, you know, in the academy system in Germany, played at uh, Lyman, which is um, the academy that Boris Becker um, grew up in, Steffi Graf, Anke Huber, and a couple of the big Germans. And um, uh was was really good junior uh, in the world and traveled around, played all the ITF tournaments in Europe. And uh, I got injured when I was about 17, 18. I had this um, this lower back injury that stemmed from a, a pre-consistent pre um, condition that I had, uh, which is called stenosis, which is when your uh, spinal canal is really narrow. So it continuously pinches your sciatic nerve, uh, which is a tremendous pain that you have every day. And the more you play, the, uh, the, the more severe those, those pains get. And uh, back then, surgery wasn't an option. It was they gave me like a 50-50 chance of being able to play. And, and so um, it was a hard sort of decision for me um, after you're dedicating your, your life to that point, to the sport and uh, having all these dreams and ambitions and goals and sort of having to step back. Um, it took me about a year and a half to get over that. But um, I had a chance to, to come to the States and play some college tennis. Um, had a great coach by the name of Paul Costin who was a Swede, who sort of um, uh, helped me with the cultural transition. You know, it was a big, big deal going from Germany and coming here and not speaking English that well and uh, being immersed in this new culture, this new environment, this new community at, at, uh, at VCU in Richmond. And um, started my college career, uh, got a degree in, in business and then um, uh, moved on uh, to to bigger and better things. But the acting thing was really never a goal of mine. It was not a dream that I had growing up at all. Uh, it came about because a friend of mine suggested I went to acting class to learn how to speak English better uh, because they teach you breathing exercises and how to how to um, you know how to pronounce and 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 uh, so I went to acting class just because I wanted to learn how to speak English better, how to how to get rid of my accent. I had a really terrible German accent. And uh, so that was my, you know, uh, entry into acting, that I went to acting class. And after a couple of years, I, I thought I was ready to to give it a shot. And Soul Food was actually one of my first uh, auditions. Um and when you watch the early Soul Food episodes, you can still detect um, my accent uh, and in certain scenes. Um, I remember reading the scripts for each episode and still having to go to my castmates and ask them how to, you know, how to say certain things. And they tra translated for me. And, you know, there's colloquialisms and sayings that I didn't grow up with that I didn't understand. So they had to sort of explain it to me. And um, so Soul Food, the first, you know, the four or five years on Soul Food, to me was an apprenticeship in the industry, right? I learned every single day being on set, being around these amazingly talented people, uh, including my wife, the producers, the, the, the DP, the, the, the director, the writers, I learned from everybody. So um, it was sort of the perfect situation for me to get my feet wet in this business and to sort of start building foundation um, of my career. So, you must play with a head racket since they made in Austria. 
<laughs> actually, I did play with a head racket uh, um, first. No, actually, my first racket was a uh, Donne. It was a Bjorn Borg with the long grip. Remember that one? Yeah. Um, that was the wooden racket. That was the first one I played with. And then after that, I switched to head. And then later on, I had the pro staff at Wilson. I st stuck with Wilson since then. I'm a sound of how you escaped Austria playing with a Donne, right? As it, much, <laughs> I mean, you know, like head is like the pride of Austria. You know, That's you right. Know, I was in Nuremberg, Germany. Uh, this was 2018. Yeah. Uh, WTA 250 event right before the French Open, and uh, Sloan was playing with head rackets, and the spec wasn't right. It was like the new. It was the new cosmetic for the frame, and uh -huh. the spec wasn't right. We hit and we hit. We lost the first round. We before I'm like something wrong with this racket. She's like, yeah, I agree, something wrong with racket. So we called head, and you know they were like, no, something wrong with y'all. It ain't nothing wrong with the racket. <laughs> like no, nah. I'm like no, nah, the spec isn't right. The lead tape's in the wrong position. You didn't put silicone in the handle. Something was wrong. So a guy drove from Austria to Nuremberg, right? And that's like, you know, I failed geography class when I was in in, in, uh, in high school. So I never really realized. It's how, not that far. It's probably about five hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he came, he brought his little scale, you know, he brought his little tools to the hotel. Uh, ultimately, we were right. Something was wrong. The spec wasn't right. We fixed the spec. We uh -huh. before you French open. Yeah. Went back to the old spec, positive French open right after. So thank God that like, you know, nice. we went toe to toe. So that's, nice. that's that's how I know Austria uh, where it is. So yeah. now I know you drove or you had to take a train to an academy, right? And I always think about, you know, I read your story, you take an hour and a half train there and back to the yeah. academy. With as yeah. good as you hit a ball now, as good as you hit a ball back then with your size in today's game, can you imagine if you took that hour and a half, so maybe three hours of commute and actually spend it on the tennis court? Or right. I think like communities of color of how mm -hmm. we always have to drive far, right? To get actually to, to we gotta drive, you gotta spend three hours on a train to play two hours on the court. Mm -hmm. Right. You take mm -hmm. that and you put all five of those hours, or at least four of them, mm -hmm. on the court. Imagine where your career would be. And that's like my my pitch to creating more spaces to play in communities of color. You know, you're absolutely right. And I think it's a huge issue um, with the game in general because um, it's all about accessibility, right? And and tennis still suffers from uh, diversity challenges, I call it, right? Because um, like you said, there's a lot of communities that aren't uh, able to take advantage of this beautiful sport because it's not being made accessible. And it's all has also to do with the history of tennis. You know, if you go all the way back go all the way back uh, to its inception um, in France, the, the specs of the court were just big enough so that the common man couldn't afford to build a tennis court because the plot of land was just too small for a court to fit. So this sort of elitist approach to the sport started way early um, when the first people, you know, when the first uh, tennis players you know, started playing the sport. And I think that that now that pickleball is coming along and is sort of presenting itself as a real competitor, I think um, the powers that be should start having serious conversations about how to make tennis more accessible because we're losing a lot of people to pickleball, just like I compared to skiing, right? When you're a diehard skier and when snowboard came around, a lot of people jumped to snowboarding because it's just the easiest sport to learn. Same with pickleball, right? You can be a competitive pickleball player within 
I don't know, hours of playing the sport. <laughs> whereas, <clears throat> you know, whereas, whereas learning how to play tennis is, is much more, uh, it takes more time and it also takes a lot more money. And um, movement, you know, like agility, you got to be in shape, you got to be able yeah. to cover the court, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's, and, and I think, you know, that's one of the things when I look at how fast pickleball is caught on and the number of celebrities that are actually promoting it, investing in paddles and you see Gronk, you see Brady, it's like, how did they do this? And like, well, number one is a small footprint, right? You know what I mean? And number two is like, right. it's not as skilled, right? And number three, because you can you can be a little bit older, right? A little bit less agile and play, right? It's like, we, we have to learn how, you know, I think tennis is a big sport, but it's not the NBA. It is small enough where we can be more agile and make more decisions to adjust and compete. Mm. Hopefully. I mean, you know, there's, there's so many issues that we have with our sport. Um, It's, I think it's the third most watched sport in the world, but uh, if you compare it to the other big sports like soccer and basketball, it can't compete in terms of, in terms of the money that, that, that it generates. Right. Um, So there's something that's got to give whether it's the conversation about, players independence and and other leagues that might emerge um other tours uh uts is another example of a, of a very exciting sort of um new um concept that patrick Mortuglu has has um has started that's gaining uh a lot more um interest here in the states as well which is great um you know anything that sort of presents itself as a competition will um adds to the sport because now players have a decision to make and um when different tours compete there's also more money to be made so this got something's got to happen um definitely i don't know what i'm not an expert but um i love the sport and i want to see it grow but it's been stagnant for a while and uh i hope there's uh some change on the horizon so you got into the sport because of your father and you know, one of the great things, one of the great things about the sport is when the when the parent has lineage in the game, they spend a lot of time with their kid. Hour and a half on the train there and back, you know, <laughs> 45 minutes in the car, right? The, the parent is driving you to a tournament, not you and 15 other kids. So it's like a lot of one-on-one time, right? But yeah. that can also have the reverse effect. You know what I mean? So like, you know, my daughter goes to Howard, she has chosen not to play college tennis. And I actually very purposefully didn't spend a lot of time with her one-on-one on the court just because yeah. ultra competitive, you know, we have a bad session. She might not eat dinner that night. You know what I mean? That's I'm that right. kind of, that yeah, kind of it's, that's guy, tricky. you know what I mean? I know. So you were, a tennis, you were a tennis dad. So tell me about your tennis upbringing with your father and how that has shaped or been a model for good or bad for how mm-hmm. you were a tennis dad with your son. Yeah, I think I think um, I went the other way. My dad was a terrible coach, uh, and not from a technical standpoint because he taught me how to play, but he got way too heated, and uh, he was a very intimidating force on the court. And I I was scared. I was scared to make a mistake, and that was really really early on when I was like five years old because because my parents split up when I was five, so he left. Um, so I didn't have the benefit of a father. Uh, around when I was a teenager, right? I had to sort of find my own way. But um, me being a father of a of an athlete, uh, it sort of led me to stay away 
Um, I told Nicholas that I will support him in anything he wants to do. I will surround him with the best coaches possible uh, to help him excel in what he wants to do. But it's my job to be his father. And that means to teach him, you know, uh, discipline, structure, uh, responsibility, integrity, um, kindness, and to give him a hug when he comes in the door, whether he wins or loses. And that's how I sort of um, decided to approach the subject of coach slash father, because I've seen too many bad examples and negative examples of that, you know, going horribly wrong and for relationships to suffer because of it. So I wanted to um, focus on, you know, being his dad and let uh, the great coaches that um, thankfully I, I knew do, do the coaching. So you have a good relationship with a lot of players on the tour, right? And I, you know, over the years, I've developed a lot of relationships with a lot of the young players uh, and having like sort of sat in the seat help someone win a Grand Slam, you know, and get to another Grand Slam final, other WTA titles. When I get the young players, right, I see the young people, yeah. and I know what's ahead of them, I try to, like, not even talk to them about tennis. Just talk to them about, because they, they enter the sport very young, much like the NBA, different than the NBA, right? You know, yeah. they got the, the you got to be a player year in college rule now and that kind of thing. We get people on tour that are making, you know, millions of dollars at 16, right? And I always fear that in an individual sport, there's not any place to hide. And it's hard for them to deal with one good result, right? So, you know, I've listened to Francis TFO very carefully over the past six months. And he says, 2022 US Open changed his life, right? And thinking like, all right, let's see how, let's see how it goes from here, right? Because it can make you real swaggy, right? Um, tell me about the conversations you have. I, mean, I see you talk to a lot of players. Hey, me, well, I mean, all the Serena, all those. But tell me about the conversations you have with the young generation because you have tennis experience in a very deep way, but you also have experience with being a global figure, right, or in a, in a star and being on TV and being recognized. Well, tell me, tell me what you say to them. It's a very interesting question because, um, like you said, uh, you you tend to talk to them about other things in tennis, and I think those things are really the key to being successful at tennis because whether you're talking about um you know their private life their awareness and consciousness um their confidence their their self-awareness their their uh, perspective on the world as a whole all those things form a human being and all those things also prepare these human beings to deal uh, or to manage their emotions on the court, right? Uh, if you have a, a good relationship with your immediate environment, your friends and your family, it gives you a sense of comfort and a sense of confidence. And that uh, that then um, transcends your um, behavior on the court, right? So, or it translates to you being more able to handle the pressure and expectation that might come to you on the court because these young players have tremendous weight on their shoulders especially when they've been you know top juniors in the world and and you know uh, um, gathering all these accolades on the junior tours and now they're being thrown into the mix with with all these men uh, or or women 
And this this pressure and the expectation is so huge that sometimes you just you to completely tighten up and you play a, a style of tennis that you're not used to anymore because um, because you're changing completely how you feel about yourself and 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 the perception you have of everything around you, playing on the tour, traveling, different foods, different languages, different people. Uh, maybe you don't, maybe you can't afford a, a coach uh, and a physio. So you're by yourself. Those are really tough transitions to go through for a young player. So the conversations I'm having with like a big foe, for instance, are more about the mental aspect or the, 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 the emotional management, right. That, that he has to now face, especially after having such a successful year last year, right. Because he, he goes into the Australian open with so much expectation. Um, all of us are hoping that he will win a slam, you know, in the next three years. Um, that's a lot of pressure, right? And uh, we talked about, I call it, I call it going underwater, which is something that Boris used to say, Boris Becker, right? Because he used to tell me that um, after a slam, especially if he went to the finals or won, he couldn't form a sentence for two weeks, right? Because, uh, you know, mentally and emotionally, you're so invested in every single minute of the slam, whether you're on the court or not, you're constantly focused on this one thing that um, once it's over, you have to find your bearings again. So it's I talked awful. to Paul about, you know, being locked in and being underwater and what it feels like to him. And because I can tell when he's on the court, when he comes out, I can tell when he's locked in and I can tell when he, he loses it for a couple of minutes. And that can be the difference between, you know, winning a set or losing a set really fast. And, and that's the difference between, you know, the greats and some players who might win one is that uh, somebody like a Roger Federer or, or Nadal or, or Novak, uh, they've been able to lock in for an extended period of time. And you can tell, especially when they're not playing well or when they're missing, when they're missing shots and how they deal with that. Like when you watch Federer play and you know this, uh, you can't tell if he hits the winner or if he misses the ball by his by his emotion, right? Mm -hmm. He literally, he, he finishes a point and he moves on to the next one. There's no belaboring. There's no emotional outbursts. There's no negative energy, nothing. So that's very intimidating for an opponent, right? And that's something that the young players have to learn that, yes, it's okay to emote, but it's better to emote in a positive way than to show your opponent that you're struggling. And I think that's the difference between foe winning the Australian Open now and winning the Australian Open in two years, for instance. That he, um, I mean, he's got so much power. He's got so much speed. He's got such unbelievable hands, huge serve. He's got everything. He's got the full package. He is a he is a cat, captivating character on the on the court. People love him. He's he's a kind, amazing. Just a great guy. Um, I think we will see what happens when he's faced with these moments of inconsistency and how he manages them in order to be consistent in the long run, right? Because in order to be consistent, you have to manage inconsistencies in a way, almost disarm them by not putting too much energy towards when you miss a when you miss a ball, when you miss three points back to back, or when you lose when you lose a service game. Yeah, you know, one of the other things I think is a little bit crippling. When I look at some American players who almost got it, 
you know, got that slam, I say if they were from a smaller country, like in Austria, like a Germany, mm -hmm. they would have made it sooner. Because I feel like in America, we market and monetize mm. a good result mm -hmm. to a level some, not, not a slam, right? Like you yeah. don't win, but we take a good result. You know, fourth round's a good result. Quarters is a good result, right? We take that, market it, monetize it, blow it up, attach ourselves to it so tight that it cripples the player and makes the, dis the, dif the distance between a quarterfinal result and a Grand Slam title longer because of the crippling effect that we as a you know, I mean, America, we take something, we take water and we blow it up as Avion, right? You know what I mean? And it's, we do it, whereas like so like a smaller nation yeah. might not do it as big and get as excited yeah. and like shock the player. So I think that's yeah. one of the things I think about American players, like a Sonya Kennan. Like I mm -hmm. think like when I see a good up and comer, I'd be like, ooh, fourth round is good. But you know, fourth round of finals is like a whole different tournament. Let's not yeah. get too excited, right? Let's not too get excited, mm -hmm. try to monetize this too much and hurt their long-term chances of actually winning the slam. Because yeah. now they stop. we all own them now. And that's the one thing I worry about. They're like, yeah. all right, everybody be cool. Quarters is great, but that's a that's I know a lot of players that got to a quarters of a slam and didn't get to the finals or semis of a slam for four more years. Think mm. about that. That's 16 slams. Yeah. It's 16 slams in between yeah. quarter and the final. Yeah. That's a lot. But I mean, and I think sometimes being American hurts our young players. I think I think you're right. I think it's twofold. I think it's on the one hand, it's it's um there's a lot of advantage, there's a lot of advantages. Uh, growing up in the academy system over here in the states because you get a lot of support on the other hand scrutiny pressure expectation and comparisons are unfair at times right because you have players you know uh legacy players like pete and agassi and jimmy courier and 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 you know all these huge huge names that are sort of these banners that are hanging under the rafters and and you're being compared everything every single step of the way you're being compared your your stats are being compared at your age when how how uh to the age of the, what happens when they were that age it's 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 a lot but then on the other hand it's also i think it's a cultural thing right because uh you know look at novak for instance he grew up playing on bombed out uh, uh courts uh we got players from south america who literally play for for their lunch right they play it's it's life or death for a lot of these guys out there and i don't think that uh, american players have the benefit of that edge right because winning or losing is really indifferent for someone like a tommy paul right because his life is not going to change much if he wins the third round or not so so i think i think culture is a very important aspect of development um in players uh, and how coaches teach culture and pass on some of these values and principles to these players to understand that number one, there has to be some some reverence um, about the sport and the players that came before you. There has to be respect. There has to be um, the 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 mentality of working hard every single moment of every single day in order to achieve your goals and uh prioritizing right because the time span of a, of a career in, in in our sport is is short um so to in order to make the best of that you really have to focus and prioritize 
for that length of time in order to maximize your potential. A lot of these smaller countries, they don't have the scrutiny, right? You can sort of develop in the dark and then sort of sneak into the quarters here and there and nobody's going to ask any questions. Like Rude, Rude is a is a uh, is a great example, I think, of somebody who who was an excellent player who sort of had the 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 good fortune of 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 being developed in the shadows of the Nadal Academy. Um, his father played on a tour, and but there was not a lot, not a lot of headlights in his face while he was sort of growing up, and he had the time. And the space to really mature and develop, but now he's one of the top players. You have other young talent here, like um, uh, Seb Sebi Corda. I think mm-hmm. is somebody who's going to do extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, he's six five, six six, smooth, hits the ball cleaner than anybody else. He had the good fortune of growing up with um, with a father who played on the tour, so he he. His first year on a tour, he already he already looked like he'd been playing for ten years. He was so resolved, sure. so mature, so resolved. He, he how he manages his emotions is is incredible. Um, but again, the scrutiny was there right away. You know, he there were comparisons to Agassi, to 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 Sampras, to to all these guys uh, that came before him. It's not fair sometimes. So tell me about. Boris Becker. When I first met Boris Becker, I was walking through the tunnel of Wimbledon, you know, the tunnel that connects, you know, Wimbledon down to the practice courts at Arangi. He's like, come yeah. out. Stop. Let me talk to you. First, <laughs> I was like, honored that he knew my name. You know what I mean? Uh, and then he was like, son, you look too stressed on the sideline. <laughs> when they look at you, you got to be calm so you can display more confidence. <laughs> I said, Boris, I ain't coaching Novak. <laughs> I got a part. I said, some jobs in this sport are just don't f*** it up. <laughs> some jobs in this sport is to make it work. I said, I'm on the other side. I said, you know, I said, it's different. He said, fair point. Keep doing what you're doing. You're right. You're right. So tell me about growing up with Boris Becker, because we all hear these these stories, you know, he's a wild boy, love to have fun. Um, you know, I got to know Boris later in his limping days, right, where he can't even stand up straight, his back hurting the whole time. Tell uh, me about Boris Becker. Was he, what was he like as a kid? Wow. Um, well, I'm a little bit younger than him. So I was 11, I think, when we met first. He had just won Wimbledon at 17, which is crazy. Um, I mean, the world changed when he won Wimbledon. You know, mm-hmm. Germany was not the same after he won that tournament. It was uh, it was such a boom in the sport uh, that we benefited from afterwards. Um, so much talent came out of that country, and with Michael Stich and and Kifa and all these guys, and and um, he he was you know he was the trailblazer. He to me, he changed tennis worldwide and how it was played. He turned into a power sport, right? Him and and then you know obviously Agassi and it changed everything in the mid to late eighties after he came on the scene, and also the popularity of the sport it came it became more exciting. It truly became a global sport that sort of grew on the shoulders of of him, Agassi, and then Pete, Jimmy, 
um, he's a he's a kind. He's an amazing friend. He's a, he's a great <laughs> he's a great competitor. He's very competitive. He's a winner. Um, he always wants to win. Obviously, he has faced his share of challenges and, and adversity. But um, I talked to him a couple of days ago, and and he sounds really great. He sounds happy, and um, he is ready to start this new chapter in his life. And um, I always root for him. I love him, and um, that's my brother. So I, I'll go out on a limb and say you're probably the best player in Hollywood. Who else can play? <laughs> that's not hard. <laughs> I know, right? That's like, not hard. Player, like who else can like? You know, we hear Dr. Phil think he can play. You know, he plays a lot, that kind of thing. Who else can ball? I mean, I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know if anybody's played competitive tennis in Hollywood so I'm not sure I don't I don't really I don't play in Hollywood you know what I mean I don't I don't uh, I don't play with a lot of the, the 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 tennis players in Hollywood I, I stick with my guys that I used to play with on a tour and, and um there's a bunch there's a bunch out here in LA that 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 can ball that can play um you know all ex-college players and stuff that uh, it's really easy to get a good workout here in LA um whether it's you know whether it's with Serena or or a bunch of the guys who played uh in college and um you know Mark Josh Oswald um Tommy is here Tommy Haas and so there's a bunch of guys out here that that uh whether it's dingles or doubles or or a workout you can always get a good workout here mm -hmm. so who do you obviously know back I mean it's clear now that I think he will obviously surpass, you know, Rafa and Federer for being probably, you know, quote unquote, the most titles of all, the most grand slams of all time. I'm not going to say the greatest of all time, right? Because that can be defined. Um, and yeah. we've got some, we got a, a every, then it's everybody else, right? You got Sasha's there. You got team is coming back. You got Titi Francis coming up. You got Titi Pass. You got Alcaraz. You got like, you got like a bunch Mm -hmm. Right, and no one's really so Alcaraz, I guess, last year sort of separated himself from the pack. Who do you think will emerge first, and who do you worry about? Wow, great question. Um, I think, first of all, I think it's a great time because I worried about the post big three era, right? Because we've been spoiled for so long with the greatest of all times playing at the same time um that i was really concerned about what would come after but um you know these new these new young guys that really put put me um at ease uh whether it's carlitos alcaraz or sinner i think sinner is an extremely huge talent who i think is going to win slams i think um holger rune uh danish danish new young guy who, who beat novak in in paris I think he's a he's a young pit bull who really wants it and who will mature um mentally and get stronger emotionally. Uh, it'll help him win a lot of tournaments, I think. Uh FAA, Felix uh Ogelassim, I think he is tremendously talented, super strong, huge forehand, um, big serve, not afraid. I think he's gonna win slams. Um I think um Sebi Corda. I think he can be even more aggressive and assert himself even more. Uh, I think sometimes he 
he gets lulled into a, a too many baseline rallies. He doesn't have to stay there. He, he can come in. He can he can he can stay closer to the baseline and be more aggressive. Even who else? Uh, you know, Ben Shelton. I think is somebody who I'm excited about. Right? Uh, obviously, I know his dad, and and um, he has no fear. You know, huge forehand, huge huge serve, lefty, great hands at the net. He comes in all the time. I think he's super. Um, he's super exciting for the sport. Let's see what he does. He 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 uh, he saved the match point uh, yesterday uh, to make it to the second round. Yeah. Uh, and then you got the little older guys. I mean, they're not old, but you know, early twenties, mid twenties. You got um, Rude. You got Big Foe. You got Zverev, who uh, I'm rooting for. That's my brother. He um, when I saw him fall in Paris, I was really concerned because when you rip your ankle like that. It's really hard to come back full force and full strength, and and for him to come back in a slam after six months, that's a huge accomplishment in itself. I feel uh, for him to be moving so fluidly, so with agility and explosiveness already. Heads up to him. I wish him well. And then you have um, who else? Titipas. I think he can win numerous Grand Slams. It all depends on on his mindset. His uh, you know his his how he handles his emotions i think for him it's all between the ears he can do he can do it all i mean he's, he's an incredible player rublev uh same thing i think it all happens in between the ears with him uh, if he can contain his emotions and and stay locked in and underwater for the duration uh berrettini he lost against uh murray which was an unbelievable match but i think he can win slams he's a great competitor unbelievable competitor and then you know you got uh taylor uh, fritz i think fritz he's riding high right now in a great year i think he's got a lot of confidence and that's what it's all about you know um how confident are you when you step between these lines and start competing that uh, can be the difference between you know winning and losing so um there's a lot of there's a lot of really great guys and i i'm really excited about the next couple of years and and to to your novak question I guess it depends on his on his uh, health. You know, he is he's the best, and um, the way he just his transition between you know defense and offense and and how how fast he is and <clears throat> best return in the world, best return ever. He doesn't miss. Um, he's so solid off of both sides. He can he can take the ball early and. And he can spread the court on you and make you, you know, suffer from from, you know, he he, he turns the air off on you so fast. Um, so him, Medvedev is somebody else I think who who has a shot at this tournament, a really good shot because he plays like Novak. He's just taller and longer. Even uh, he's just as fast. He's just as solid. Huge serve. Huge forehand. So. It's going to be interesting because most of those guys are on the top half, right? Um, with with Rafa, with Nadal, you got Medvedev in there. You got all the, the the sort of next next guys. You have them in the Nadal half. Uh, Novak has a pretty easy draw if you look at it um, mm -hmm. from fifty thousand feet. But uh, we'll see. It's an exciting fresh. time. He didn't play a lot last year, so I think physically he's fresh. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Both yeah. years, fresh mentally. He hasn't even traveled that much last year, so I think. I think he's, I think of the group, the person yeah. I worry about, uh, the person I think will sort of emerge faster, obviously Alcaraz is doing that. Mm -hmm. 
I think Medvedev after the big three is the one that will dominate tennis. Just mm-hmm. from offensive defense, he's probably just the most solid. Uh, and probably should have won Australian Open last year. Yeah. Um, so I think he will be the best to sort of separate himself from that pack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm most excited about Francis, and I'm most worried about Zverev. Really? Because I, my take on Sasha, great, you know, great dude. Obviously, he does you know, stuff off the court. People can you know, go either way. It's always two sides to the story. But I think that over the years when I watch him play slams, too many five-set matches early on in the tournament, right? Where you just sort of, you know, you tank a set here, tank a set there, you look up. You're not always going to, especially at the French Open, you're not always going to escape depth, right? So I think he, he plays around early in the tournament too often, and I think that'll hurt him. Mm-hmm. Two, I think of that group, he's the least dependable server later in the sets. Okay. And, and I think that will... When I think about the Tissy Pass, the, you know, I, I just think that I, he's the one I worry about in terms of being a little too lax in the middle of the uh, middle of the event and not mm-hmm. getting to where he is, or even getting to the finish line and just sort of realizing the gravity and then it just sort of uh, hurt him. And I think honestly, center to me, has got a he's got the longest way to go because of his size. He's still like a boy's body, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think he's the one where I look at that group. I sort of put him years away because mm, of okay. his size and great mobility, right? But I mean, you know, but in terms of just his size, he's just he's 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 little he's a little thing. I'm a thin guy too, so I know how it is, right? You know, um, so that's that's sort of my take oh, yeah. on those on, on those groups. But I think it's I think I think I think I think in terms of Sasha, I think that it comes with maturity. I think that I think he's learned a lot in the last year. He's been through a lot, and I think that uh, hopefully he'll apply some of these. Uh, experiences and and be more conscious about what he just said to to manage his emotions to manage um you know the game better especially in the slams I, I'm, I'm more worried about team because I worry that if he doesn't get back to top 20 top 15 in the next year it's going to be tough for him from a from a motivational standpoint because he he has to put in a lot of work to play at that level and, uh, you know, when you come back from injury, there's the physical um, recovery and then there's a the mental recovery and the emotional recovery, which is sometimes more difficult than the physical part, because you have to be able to go, go back on a court without thinking about the injury, you know, playing with confidence without the worry that something else might happen. And I think that is a, is a process that has been taken a little too long for him now and so it's showing up in his performances even though the first round against Rublev it was tough Rublev he played out he had he had had every ball like 300 miles an hour so he never got air he never had a second to breathe um, which was really tough first round so we'll see what he does in the next couple tournaments Indian Wells is going to be a a sort of a good meter too to see what he does because he's super comfortable at that tournament as well and Miami so we'll see yeah, and I think, you know, coming back from an injury like that, you know, having to get a wild card in, unranked, you're going to play, say, I remember Sloan won the U.S. Open 2017. Mm-hmm. Six of her seven matches were against seeded players. So when you're out of the game for that long, you're going to have to thug your way through to win one. You know what I mean? I mean, think yeah. about that. Six out of seven matches against the seed, you know, that's that's that's, that's rough. Yeah. And she did it. So, uh, how, is her, how is her draw now? How is her draw in, in the – first, first two or three – 
I mean, look, I say on the winning side, anybody can beat anybody, but I think the first two or three should be very, very, very manageable. Yeah. Um, and then after that, then you start to get into, you know, some of the seeded players or whatever. But, I mean, Sloan can beat anybody when she decides to. So, I, I'll, yeah. I'll say that to the day I die. You know what I mean? Whenever she whenever she wants to do it, beat anybody. I played with her. I played with her when she was 14, I think. It was in, in Ojai. I remember thinking, wow. But I think with her, it's also, it's just here. It's just in between yeah. the ears. You know, that's all. Because sometimes she, 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 her, her body language is, gets, you know, her shoulders and, and stuff. She gets into that whole self-deprecating thing. And I think if she learns how to stay up for, for the entirety of a tournament and stay, you know, energized and positive, her shots, I mean, her forehand is, is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Do anything. But it's interesting because you got you got these big you got these big hitters now on the women's side, Sabalenka and who else? There's a couple of big Sakari. Um it's interesting too. Uh, obviously, uh, what's her name? Uh, Swatek. Um she's uh she's a little bit ahead of everybody else because um, you know, she plays with so much confidence of both wings and, and hits it so hard and, and spreads the court so wide. And and some of these girls they they are not that comfortable with slicing. So um every shot they hit it's in her strike zone and that's why nobody beats her right but then you have somebody like jabor who plays with flair and slicing and, and drop shots it's 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 harder for swati to play somebody like her than girls who just play right and left the same way yeah because you can't go through or you can't make like i always say sabalenka will struggle to win a slam because i don't know if she can win seven matches playing the way she plays with that level of, yeah <laughs> Yeah, aunt can kind of like feel her a little bit. You know what I mean? The way she plays, she can play any day. You know what I mean? Yeah. As long as she don't get too irresponsible and too creative, you know what I mean? She can sort of move and make balls. And just well, she started, she started taking some pace off and adding a little more spin and adding a little more margins, which has helped her. She just won, uh, where did she win? Adelaide? Didn't she just win the tournament? Adelaide, won Adelaide, yeah. Five yeah. matches. I would say five matches different than seven. You know, that's right. That's six matches when that forehand, oh, yeah. you know, you only got so many of them in your tank. And by the time you get to six, seven matches, I'm like, ooh, you need to, like, I always, I always like to joke around and say, hey, uh, don't be a hero with my bonus. Mm, there you go. Make that ball. It's more, it's more blue than green. Let's try to keep that ball in the blue today. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, that's right. I like when you get to the semis and the finals, you can keep all that big shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, bro, let's. Let's make the ball. You know what I mean? Let's. It's like let's it's like when when you watch uh, when you watch Maddie Maddie Keys play. You know she's got every shot in the book. She hits it harder than anybody. But if she just add a little more margin, a little more margin, I think she wins so many more matches. Well, man, you've been very for time. One last question: I want you to talk about your work with the foundation because you acknowledge your story, my story, the thing, the work we do every day about sort of mentoring the next the next generation, providing opportunities for Black youth or underserved youth with a Black Hispanic doesn't even matter, right? If you don't have access to the sport, we want to get you access to the sport. Give us a little quick thing about what you got going on with Tennis Channel and trying to create opportunities for the next generation. Yeah, you know, I'm excited because, um, like you said, um, when you love a sport, you want you want the youth to be able to take advantage of some of the, some of the benefits that come with playing such a beautiful sport like tennis. And to to give access is how we can make that available 
right? So with the Tennis Channel and what we're doing with Love All is um, we're just trying to support some of the high school students that are out here on their journey to becoming a better tennis player and give them access to some of the academies out there, like the Mortugalo Academy, um, just to grab a passport and to travel to a different country and go to school with um, kids from different countries who speak a different language to, to be able to uh, see other mentalities and cultures. And, and it expands your horizon and your idea of uh, what the world looks like. And it gives you so much, so many more opportunities um, also as you sort of make your way and, and walk down your path, whether it's through tennis or education, you know, you can go to college and there's so many different ways that you can turn, but uh, without that access, there's really no way. So with the Koja Family Foundation, we just try to facilitate access and give uh, young black kids an opportunity that a lot of these other white kids have. Um, and it's it's great because we've gotten a lot of support from you know Patrick Mortuglu and and uh, you know my friends at the Tennis Channel who understand how important it is and who are inspired by some of these kids that come out and and show us how driven they are and how motivated they are and how much they really embrace these opportunities when they're given. And that's all you can do, you know. Uh, tennis has given me everything. Uh, I'm here because of tennis. I'm in the states. I'm. I'm, an, I'm really I'm an actor because I had the opportunity to come over here on a tennis scholarship. So um, I don't really like to say it's it's giving back because that sort of infers that I'm in front of you. It's almost it's like supporting the next person, right? It's supporting the people that that uh, emerge next to you and and empowering them, just like I was empowered. I was I was supported when I came here. Well, man, I want to thank you, um, thank you for being an ambassador to the sport. You know, we, I think tennis, one of the things that I would love to see it do is get out and bring others in, right? Uh, for more mainstream with actors and other athletes from other sports uh, and to grow this great game. So you're an example of that. Happy and honored to be able to get your story out there because I guarantee 90% of the people did not know that, you know, your success, your career is all as a result of opportunities provided to you from tennis, which, That's right. you know, I think this game does. Man. So I appreciate you. Thanks for coming to the show. This has been the Tennis.com podcast with Boris Kojo. Thank you so much, Kamal. Appreciate you. Appreciate everything you do. Thank you, buddy.